So this is the final episode, the final part of this series called Life Changer. And we've been uh, going through the first four chapters of John's Gospel and looking at how Jesus transforms lives. In fact, right back at the beginning of the series, Andy said that uh, Jesus, the, the life changer, is, is what we believe in, it's what we're focused on, it's what we're concerned about, not just for people out there, kind of the community at large, who of course uh, need to hear and know and respond to Jesus, but also for us as well. And as we go through uh, the Gospel of John, we find ourselves challenged and stirred and moved by what we see. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life to the full. And yet all around us, we see uh, lives that are full, but are not to the full. You know what I mean by that? Everyone's kind of busy, everyone's chasing, but it feels a little bit like chasing their tail a lot of the time. It's just going around and around in circles in everyday life. A lot of people experience the frustration of work, but never completing the list, never getting the job done. And so work can be this uh, immensely frustrating experience. And then in our spare time, in our leisure time, uh, it always seems like everything falls just a little bit short, doesn't it? Just one more episode on Netflix, and then I'll be satisfied. And yet after eight series of 24 or whatever it is that you've binge watched, you're still not quite as satisfied as you think you should be, right? And whether it's uh, TV or films or uh, fun entertainment or sports, just one more match, one more game, one more game of squash. Uh, yes, Tim, whatever it is, there's always that sense of just the next one will satisfy. And yet we live in a world of people that are profoundly unsatisfied, unsatisfied in daily life, unsatisfied in relationships. Maybe the next one. Maybe the next boyfriend, the next girlfriend, the next husband, the next wife, maybe the next one will satisfy. And then we live in a world, of course, of all sorts of different religious expressions. And, and there's a, a sort of an emptiness that you can recognize in that with whether it's pilgrimages or whether it's attending services or, or whatever it is. There, there seems to be a kind of go, 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 but never quite get there kind of sense to humanity living under the different religions. And so satisfaction is, it seems to be elusive, doesn't it? It seems to be like trying to grab hold of mist. It's, it's never quite within our grasp. C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote the Narnia series, said uh, that whenever you find a longing within a creature, that means that there must be something that satisfies that longing. So ducklings have a desire to swim, which means that there must be such a thing as water. Or uh, babies have a, a thirst, so there must be such a thing as milk. Little uh, birds in the nest, uh, as after they come out of the egg, have a, a real longing for food, so there must be such a thing as worms. Men and women have a, a deep, inbuilt, kind of hardwired sexual desire, so there must be such a thing as sex. And if we find ourselves with a deep longing for something that this world does not seem to satisfy, it must mean that we are built for another world, for something else. And that's what John 1 to 4 has been showing to us, that it's only when we encounter Jesus, it's only in coming to know him that we can get that otherworldly, that, that total, deep, complete satisfaction. 
It's interesting that um, I suppose we could use the analogy of a river. If you have a river and it's polluted, the way to deal with that pollution is not to start cleaning the river down by the sea. It's to go right up river, right to the source, right? You've got to stop the pollution wherever it's starting. And so as humans, where do we need to go to deal with the, uh, the issues, the dissatisfaction, the frustrations of life? We need to go right up the river. And, and what I mean by that is that the source of all that we do, all that we are, is our hearts. It's our longings. It's our desire, our yearning for satisfaction. And so today's passage in John chapter 4 takes us uh, to see Jesus encountering an individual who is a wonderful example of desperate longings, of a need for satisfaction that has never been quenched. And so if you've got one of the Bibles, it's on page 888, John chapter 4, page 888, and we're going to see the story of Jesus encountering one person. But this one person is kind of like every one of us. So let's, uh, let's jump in. And I'll just read the first 15 verses or so to you. In fact, let's jump in at, at verse 3. Uh, the first couple of verses are, are kind of referring back to what we talked about last time. But verse 3, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So it seems like a a chance encounter. Right? Jesus is, is traveling from uh, the south, from Judea, around Jerusalem area, and he's traveling north to Galilee. Galilee is uh, oh, 80 miles or something north. It's, it's not a hor- horrible distance, but it's a substantial journey. And so um, typically what the Jews would do, because they didn't want to travel through this area in between called Samaria, they, they would travel kind of out of their way. And so it's kind of like going from 
I don't know, from here to London, but avoiding the M4 because, you know, Reading. Uh, so you, you want to sort of skirt around it. So they, instead of going straight up through Samaria, typically they'd go uh, across the, the uh, River Jordan, up the other side of the River Jordan through an area which I love uh, its name. Its name literally is the other side. So they'd go up through the other side and then cross back into Galilee. But on this occasion, Jesus and his disciples go straight up. They go uh, along the M4. They go straight up through uh, Samaria. And they get to this place called Sychar, and it's the middle of the day, and the middle of the day in the Middle East is pretty hot, right? Ridiculously hot often. And the sun's beating down, and Jesus is weary and tired, and he sits down at this well while the disciples go off to get food. And while they're gone, a woman comes. Now, it's not unusual for a woman to come to a well, but it is unusual to do it at noon. It's hot just walking in the Middle East at that time of day, but carrying a great container of water, that's no fun at all. Pulling the rope up, all the the work that's involved. And so she's coming at noon, which kind of raises a bit of a question mark, like what's up with her? What's the deal with this woman? Why is she there at noon when everybody else would be there at sort of six, seven in the morning? Maybe she's trying to avoid them. Maybe six, seven in the morning, she feels heat from these other women that is worse than the heat from the sun at the, at the noontime. We'll see why in a few minutes. But here she is, and she comes to the well, and, and she's encountering Jesus. So here's a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman, and effectively, they're alone. Now, for, for them, that's awkward. It's awkward male-female. It's awkward Jew-Gentile or Jew-Samaritan. And she picks up on the Jew-Samaritan thing because as soon as Jesus starts talking to her, uh, her response is, hey, hang on a second, you're obviously Jewish. Maybe he's wearing a T-shirt or something, right? You're obviously Jewish, and I'm a Samaritan why are you talking to me? And so they had this conversation, and and it's a bit of a weird one because Jesus asks her to get him a drink and then kind of tells her off for not asking him to give her a drink. And you kind of go, what's that about? That's kind of unfair. But actually what's going on here is Jesus is engaging her in the midst of the daily rhythm of life and offering her satisfaction. She comes to this well every day. She gets the water. She pulls it up. She lifts it onto her head, carries it back to where she stays. She uses it for washing, for drinking, for cooking. And the next day it's gone and she comes again. And it's just that sense that is never enough. And Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he could have given you living water. Now, in her mind, living water would mean something. Right? She would be thinking living water as opposed to well water. So well water is a, a well, it's kind of a hole in the ground, sort of a cistern of some kind that would be replenished either from rain or from underground somehow, but it, it's just kind of still water, and you don't really want to hang out in still water. If you've ever had a fish tank, if you want it to last more than a few weeks, the water needs to be moved, Right? Otherwise, it goes green and the fish goes sideways and it's just not a pretty picture. Then you have funerals in the bathroom and all that kind of malarkey. So so still water is not as good as living water. A bubbling up spring where the water then moves, it doesn't go green. It doesn't grow things. 
but it gives life. And so when Jesus says to her, you should have asked me, I could have given you living water. She's kind of looking around going, I've lived here my whole life. There's no spring around here. What are you talking about? You see, it's an intriguing conversation, but it's a little bit like Jesus with Nicodemus, isn't it? Those of you that were here a couple of weeks ago, Nicodemus was Mr. Example Man, Mr. Perfection in human terms, like the highest achieving academic, the minister of education. He was powerful. He was uh, influential. He was knowledgeable. And he came to Jesus and asked Jesus a question, and Jesus responds to him by telling him that he needed to be born again, born from above, and he got completely confused. Jesus meant something spiritual, and Nicodemus took it physical. He thought about, how do I climb back inside my uh, possibly dearly departed mother? That's kind of weird. How could that happen? Uh, and Jesus says, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something spiritual. And so he's, he's doing it again. Here's this woman, and, and Jesus is talking about living water, something spiritual, something deep inside, and she thinks he means literal bubbling water. It's not really her fault. That's easy mistake to make, but a really important point for Jesus to make. Because he says, you will come here and you will draw water and then you will uh, be thirsty again. Just like when you go to the fridge on a hot day and you get a drink and you go back and you oh, that was refreshing. Before you know it, you need to go again and get more. And it's never refreshing enough. It never ultimately quenches the thirst. And that's just physical. Here, Jesus is tapping into the spiritual thirst. And he's saying, listen, love, you've got this, this desire inside of you for something that goes way beyond. It goes way deeper than the daily routines of life. And I can give you satisfaction. I can give you, at, right at the core of your being, a, a living water, a, a spiritual life. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Uh, Old Testament kind of background feeds into that. But the idea of something bubbling up and alive within her. If you think about a spring and the difference between a spring of water and a well... One of the differences is that you can dry up a well, you can fill it with sand and dirt, and then you can build a house on it. End of the well. But what happens if you try to build something on top of a spring? You put your foundations in and you build your house, and, and after a while, water starts seeping in. And bubbling through the floor, here comes the water again. Jesus is saying to her, I can give you something that's going to bubble up within you so that when you're in the midst of life and you're struggling, there's hope bubbling through. When you're dissatisfied with all the, the humdrum stuff of work and life and all the complexities of, of each day and all the burdens and all the hassles, I can give you something that, that kind of bubbles up through that with, with life in the midst of the death that you experience. That's what I want to give you. And that's a great description of the Christian life, isn't it? Those of us that have trusted Christ and become part of His family will be the first to tell you it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't make everything easy. It doesn't make all the problems go away. But somehow, somehow in the midst of life, we can be burdened and stressed and, and things can be piling up on top of us and yet it's like there's something that sometimes just bubbles through. Hope, joy, life. 
It's, it's like in the midst of the, the darkest moments for us as believers in Jesus, there's something that we cannot explain in human terms that just bursts through. And you can find yourself singing with joy in the midst of absolute agony. You can find yourself trusting and hoping in the midst of the most hopeless situations. That's what Jesus is offering to this woman. A, a wellspring of real life coming up inside of her. Now, I think that when she encountered Jesus, based on what we're going to read next, I think she had an idea of who he was. Not who he actually was, but she had an idea. Here's a man at a well asking me a weird question. Been there, done that, right? That's what she's thinking. She's thinking, he's trying to chat me up. Give me a drink. Oh, what? What's the next line? You know, she would probably have expected the follow-up to be, could I get your phone number? Or whatever they did in those days. And so when she gets to the end of, uh, of this little interaction, I'm not sure what her tone is. In verse 15, when she says, Sir, uh, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I'm not sure that she's like falling on her knees asking for what I just described. I wonder if she's kind of being a little bit, you know, sarcastic. Like, go on then. I'll play along with this. Give me this water. I'd, if you're offering me a way to not come here every day, my goodness, that would be nice. Go on then. And she's probably expecting a clever line to follow. Maybe she's expecting a, you know, where do you live? Or nice to meet you, my name is. Maybe she's expecting something a bit more sophisticated, some kind of chat-up line or something. I don't know what she's expecting, but, but she's calling him sir. Before, he was just a Jew, but now he's sir. So he's got her attention. But what Jesus comes out with is not what she's expecting at all. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. That's really awkward in a kind of male-female at a bar kind of situation, getting to know each other. It's really awkward when one raises the other person's spouse, right? Go get your husband. Hang on. That changes everything. Well, it kind of touched a nerve because she said, I've got no husband. And then, this is the freaky part, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That's weird. Isn't that weird? Like, imagine being her. She thinks she's figured out what this guy's up to, and suddenly he's totally turned the whole thing upside down. First of all, by bringing her husband into the conversation, and then, when she says she hasn't got one, by saying you've had five, and now you've got a living lover. And, and she's like, what in the world? It's, it's kind of weird, isn't it, when someone knows you and you don't think they do. In, in America, I, I may have used this example before, but in our church back in the States where Melanie's from, they use printed name tags. I think it's a great idea. I haven't convinced anyone here yet, but printed name tags, right, so that you can not be doing that awkward, um, 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 I, I know I should know who you are thing, but you can just look at the tag and say, hey, John, how are you? And pretend at least you know them. And so they do the printed name tag thing, and then after church, you go to a restaurant for lunch, and typically, if you're me, you forget that you're wearing a printed name tag, right? Now, in England, I don't think it would make the slightest bit of difference. But in America, a waiter or waitress comes over and, uh, and they say, hey, my name's whatever, and I'm here to you know, serve you anything I can get for you. And they do their whole friendly intro thing. Uh, and they give their name, 
And then they go around the table for the order and they say, Peter, what about you? And you're like, huh? Ah, how does she know me? Oh, wait. And you pull the name tag off, right? Just simple little thing, but it's weird. Jesus has just absolutely nailed this woman's life. You've had five husbands and you're living with someone who's not your husband, which was not approved in that culture any more than it was in the Jewish culture. That's, that's really uncomfortable. That's like, that's going way beyond the dissatisfaction of the daily visit to the well. And that puts the finger on a deeper, deeper dissatisfaction. Here's a woman who, for whatever reason, has never found satisfaction in the home, in, the, in her relational life. I, I don't know what the reasons are for five husbands. Basically, there's two options. One option is that she's been divorced five times and she's kind of like a Hollywood-type person, right? That's obviously negative. There tends to be you know, a history if someone's been divorced five times. Or she's been widowed five times, which isn't really much better, is it? If you think about it, in fact, the rabbis used to say, if a woman has been widowed once, okay, you can marry her. But if she's been widowed twice, you need to be careful, Three times, don't go near. All right, there's something that doesn't quite work right. She does a little pinch of something in her falafels or in her salad, and you know, a bit, bit of arsenic for balance or whatever it is, and the husbands just keep dying off. So five times she's been divorced or widowed. There's a huge question mark hanging over this woman's life. The fact that she's there in the middle of the day probably is because... Like I said earlier, 7 a.m., there's heat, not from the sun, but from the other women's looks and the other women's dagger comments. They, they probably all feel threatened by this woman. Maybe they're all suspecting that she's after their husbands too. And so it, just the intensity of that means that she'd rather suffer in the middle of the day than, than try to be part of the community. This is a desperately lonely woman. Lonely from friends, for friends, lonely for a, a man who can satisfy, and she's probably pretty jaded. It's not working. I'm not getting it. I'm not satisfied. And Jesus is putting his finger right on that. Now, it's uncomfortable for her, so she changes the subject. And I suppose that she's got several options. Weather, that would be the English option. Uh, sport, that's a more modern option. Religion, politics, she goes religion, which I think is quite amusing considering who she's talking to. So verse 19, the woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I don't think she's actually that concerned about religion. She just wants to change the subject, right? She just wants to kind of go somewhere else and get off the awkwardness of her own private life. But Jesus, Jesus takes that. He's, he's willing to talk religion because religion, like relationships, like daily life, is just another sphere where our human dissatisfaction just seems to overwhelm us. The Samaritans had this mountain that they would go to and a temple and they would worship and, and just ritual upon ritual upon ritual and Actually, Jerusalem was kind of the same. And so how does Jesus respond to that? He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So, so Jesus' response to her is, He doesn't say both mountains are silly. He does affirm that salvation is from the Jews, but, but He wants to get her gaze off of mountains off of buildings, off of rituals, off of externals. Just like living waters, a spiritual inner reality, Jesus is saying true religion is an inner reality. That God the Father wants those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, not just in temples or on mountains. Now whatever that in spirit and in truth is, it's got to be something inner It's got to be something heart level. It's got to be something spiritual. There's all sorts of possible explanations. I won't really go into those. But but I think if we just get the fact that Jesus is saying, God is seeking people who will be responsive to him from the heart, who will have the spirit of God inside, kind of like that living water bubbling up within. The, The overflow of that is what God is after. And so she's, she's quite captivated by this. Remember, this is Ms. Dissatisfaction, right? This is the, a woman whose life is frustrating on every level. And she's met someone who's answered the need for satisfaction in daily life, who's put his finger on the issue in the relational life and is now telling her that there's hope in the religious life, that there's a way to find satisfaction, to have your deepest thirsts quenched. And so she says to him in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, look at verse 26. Remember who he's talking to now, okay? Jesus is talking to a nobody woman who's had five husbands and is living with someone she shouldn't be. Somebody who's shunned by her whole community who lives in an area that nobody likes. Right? This is not Nicodemus now. This is the total opposite end of the scale. And what does Jesus say to her? I am the one who speaks to you. That's what he says. I am, literally. The great I am of the Old Testament, the, the name and label for God himself. Jesus just speaks it plain as day. I am the one who speaks to you. You want the, you want the Messiah? Voila, I'm right here. I'm the one that's engaged you in this conversation. I'm the one that's offering you the gift of life, the gift of God. How cool is that? No games, no going around the houses or around the back of the bush or whatever in terms of explanations and questions and confusion. Jesus just says, I am. I love that. I love that because if he's willing to do that for her, a nobody in the middle of nowhere who was disliked even by those who knew her, if he was willing to do that for her, that means that Jesus is willing to do that for us. Here we are, a bunch of relative nobodies. None of us are super famous or super rich. None of us have achieved, you know, like Nobel Peace Prizes or anything. We're just normal folk from Wiltshire. And we might be sitting here with all sorts of baggage in our background, all sorts of skeletons in the closet and issues, all sorts of frustrations of the tediousness of life, all sorts of emptiness. 
And yet Jesus comes to us and says, you want to know who's going to satisfy? You want to know the Messiah? I am. I'm He. And I'm offering you life. You see, if Jesus had had this conversation with Nicodemus, it would have been amazing. But Nicodemus was up here compared to us. This woman is, at least on our level, maybe lower by human standards. And he's ready to invite her to life just in one conversation. That means there's hope for us. That means as we hear this, as we think about this, we can right here in our seats respond to Jesus and say, Jesus, if if that's you, I want it. If you're offering life, here I am. I'm I'm here. I, I want you to show yourself to me. So it's a beautiful moment, and, and it would have been one of those moments to kind of put in a bottle and, and keep in the fridge and go back to. It's a very special moment in this person's life. And then it gets really awkward really fast because the disciples came back. I just imagine these 12 men stood in a semicircle, staring and kind of whispering. It's awkward because Jesus is talking to a woman, and, and it's like, well, what do they say? Uh, do they say... What do you want with him? Well, that kind of usurps his authority. That's awkward. Do they want to say to Jesus, why are you talking to a woman? Well, that's kind of rebuking Jesus. That's awkward. So you can imagine them, can't you? Just kind of elbowing each other. You ask him. I'm not asking him. You ask him. Well, ask her. I can ask her. Ask him. And all this whispering's going on, and she's had this moment of conversation with Jesus, and suddenly there's this audience of 12 men going, I don't get it. And so surprisingly, or maybe not, she leaves, her, um, she leaves her water jar and she gets away fast and she goes into the town and suddenly this woman is, is transformed. This woman who would slink into town in the heat of the day and probably go around the back alleys to get back to her little bedsit wherever it was, this woman comes into the town square and declares for everyone to hear, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Drop down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And then they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. So the, 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 the town come, and they hang out, and they listen, and after a couple of days, they're kind of graciously, I hope, putting her back in her place and saying, look, we, you got us here, but actually what's convinced us is him. We've met him, and we've been transformed, and we're convinced he's the savior of the whole world, even Samaritans. Isn't that amazing how God could use one nobody to reach an entire village? Imagine what he could do with us. It's a thought, isn't it? He used one nobody who all she did, she didn't have any answers. She hadn't read any books. She didn't have any big words. All she could say was, I met someone that's totally changed my life. He told me everything I ever did. Could it be the Messiah? Could it be the Christ? And, And her words and her boldness and the transformation was so stark that the villagers looked at each other and said, we need to find out more because something's happened to her. And so Jesus has gone from being a Jew to being a sir, to being a prophet, to being the Messiah, and now declared by the whole village the Savior of the world. That's quite a progression in one story. 
You see, Jesus changes lives. He changed the life of that woman. He changed the lives of those people. Jesus wants to change lives today. He comes to us and he's willing to be as plain as we need him to be. When he offers us life, life to the full, he's not joking. When he offers us living water that bubbles up within, he's not being tricky. When he says, I can satisfy you, he means it. It's an amazing passage. It's a beautiful passage, but we haven't actually covered the whole passage. Because as well as the woman and the villagers, there's 12 other people involved here. And this is another reason why I absolutely love this story, because these other 12, you would think, are already on board. The 12 disciples, right? They've been with Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. They've kind of interacted with him for who knows how long. And you think, yeah, they're fine. They're in. But actually, we discover that they too are not very satisfied. And I appreciate that because I know in my life, I find myself drawn to other things. I'm a pastor of a church and a preacher, and I, you know, I, I know about this stuff, and yet I still find myself thinking, oh, if I could just do that, that would satisfy. If I could just watch that, that would be an hour well spent. If I could just have enough money to buy that, then I'd, my life would be full. And I find that feeling constantly there in me. And so these verses, verses 31 down to, what is it, 38 are a really healthy reminder for me and and maybe for you too. So the disciples are urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. So they've come back from the village and they're saying, come on, Jesus, you need to eat. And he said to them, I've got food to eat that you do not know about. So his disciples, now it's their turn to miss the point. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did you see one of those Domino's mopeds coming down the lane? Like, how has he had food? We went to get food. I am carrying the food. Jesus has had food. How is that possible? And so they're thinking pizza, kebab, falafel, whatever. They're thinking literal. Jesus is meaning spiritual, right? And so Jesus said to them, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. I'll explain this in a second. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. That's confusing, isn't it? What he's saying to them is this. He's quoting, effectively quoting from Amos 9. In Amos 9, it says that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be a transformation of harvesting principles in Israel so that instead of sowing, waiting four months and then reaping, which is kind of the way of farming, right? Jesus, or the the book of Amos is saying, in that day, the person reaping is going to be overtaking the person sowing. It's going to be growing so abundantly. And, And he's using that kind of imagery to say, you know, it's, it's reaping time now, boys. And in this conversation, as they're talking, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. Now, we don't actually know which town in Samaria, modern town, is the town of Sychar. But the best guess that we have is that the town of Sychar is this town sort of up on a hill. 
And, and it's got this pathway, natural pathway, that's a bit like the shape of my arm. It's like a dog leg that leads down to what's called Jacob's well. Now, if that's the, the situation, and Jesus is down here talking to his disciples, and they're kind of in a semicircle looking at him, and Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white for harvest. I'm not certain, but I reckon that they looked up and looked over his shoulder, and they looked at this field here, and they saw a field filled with white as the villagers lifted up their skirts, their robes, and, and come running through the field instead of going single file. No, no, this woman's being transformed. We've got to see this. And there's like a wave of white coming across the field. And for the next two days, the disciples are, are chatting to these people and explaining what Jesus said. And hey, what did he say? I missed a word. Oh, he said this. I've heard this one before. And they're, they're telling and they're explaining and they're joining in and they're participating and they're involved in the mission of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you know me, you're following me, great. But if you want to be satisfied, join me. Be a part of, of what I'm doing. Get involved in my work. There's nothing more thrilling than that. Sometimes we experience something similar. It's, it happens maybe with... Um, Maybe you've had this kind of thing in a church in the past where you're involved in, say, a youth ministry or a kids club or something that happens during the week, and you leave work, and you, you come to the, the youth group, and, and you're getting stuff ready, and you're setting up, and, and then you have the youth come, and you do the whole youth thing, and you're chatting to them afterwards, and then one parent has forgotten to pick up their child, so you're stuck with this kid for an extra hour, and, you, and that's great because you're chatting, and they're asking good questions, and, and then there's all the tidy up and clear up, and then it gets to like 11 o'clock, and you go... Oh my goodness, I haven't eaten since lunchtime. I never even noticed. There's something so incredibly satisfying about being involved in God's work. It's what can satisfy us when we find ourselves drawn into the, the humdrum routines and the empty promises of this world. The Netflix binge-watching and the, the shopping, and the, the, the DIY, and the sports, and the relationships, and all of that stuff, when we start pursuing things as if they're going to satisfy us, Jesus comes to us by His Spirit and gently taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, you want to be satisfied? Listen to me. I've got food you know not of. I, I can satisfy you. Just come and join me. Get involved in what I'm doing. And maybe that's what we need as we finish this series on Life Changer. Maybe we need to be reminded not only that Jesus came to reach a lost world and don't they need to hear about Jesus, which is true, but maybe we need to be reminded for ourselves, I need Jesus too. Here I am also with a tendency to go after other things and Jesus alone can satisfy me. Jesus alone can transform my life. And, and one last thing. I don't want us to miss this. This is such a beautiful thought here. That, that Jesus here is not simply saying, I can satisfy you, become a servant. He's not just saying, I can satisfy you, come and be one of my servants. What's he really saying? It's a bit alien to us, but if you go through the Old Testament, you would know that the well is a place of real significance. It's kind of like the eHarmony.com of the Old Testament. The well is the place where couples would meet. Think about um, 
in the book of Genesis, there's at least two occasions, Isaac and Rebekah, or Isaac's servant and Rebekah, and then Jacob and Rachel, and then Moses with his wife in, in the first chapters of Exodus. This is, this is the place where a, a man and a, a foreign woman meet and end up marrying. That, that's kind of Old Testament imagery. And guess what's going on here in John 4? There's a Jewish man. He comes to a well and he sits down and a foreign woman comes. She hasn't got a clue what's going on. But by the end of it, she's met someone who wants to satisfy. Not just with water welling up from within, as amazing as that is. And not just with religion so that she could be a worshiper, a true worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. But also in the other category. This woman who's had five husbands and, and now has a living lover. Jesus is saying, I want you to meet me. Because I want to be your groom. I want to be the bridegroom, and I want you to be part of my bride. See, that's the beautiful picture of the whole of Scripture, isn't it? That Jesus comes to us when we deserve anything but, and He proposes. He invites us to not just to know Him as amazing as that is, not just to be satisfied as amazing as that is, but to to be satisfied because we're His, because we're married to Him. And obviously, you marry someone, you end up joining in their mission. We, as the bride of Christ, get to join in his mission. So I'm just going to pray briefly, and Andy's going to come up and, and introduce us to communion, which is that reminder of the ultimate proposal. Jesus said, I love you this much. Will you be part of my bride? Let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you so much for Jesus. And we want to pray as well that as we look at and maybe take the bread and the juice, that it would stir within us that kind of deep inner spiritual response that you're looking for. And we just want to say thank you that Jesus is the life changer. Thank you that you've done everything to bring to us the gift of deep, satisfying life. And it's my prayer that for every one of us, we would discover in Jesus that our deepest thirsts, our deepest longings can be truly quenched. We pray in his name. Amen.